Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, folks? Xavier Katana here with The Human Experience. This is our episode with Mr. Daniel Pinchbeck, in which we covered his book, How Soon Is Now. In this episode, we discuss the brink of ecological crisis our planet is facing. We talk about how our actions in the next few years will determine the destiny of our children's children. This is an essential episode to hear if you care about where our planet is headed. Guys, we survive on your support. Get to thehumanxp.com slash donate to help support our program. Any donations go directly to making the program better for you, our listeners. A huge thanks to Daniel for his time. Please also find us on Twitter at The Human XP. Get to our Facebook page and give us a like. And thank you so much for listening. The Human Experience is in session. My guest today is Mr. Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Thanks for having me on The Human Experience. So Daniel, your new book is called How Soon Is Now? And you're talking about the the global tribe and what's going on on a global scale. I mean, why don't you why don't you start us off with what is your background? How did you get to writing this book? I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I was from a sort of cultural background. My parents were artists. <clears throat> Went to college, dropped out. After a couple of years, started working in magazines. Uh, kind of worked my way up the magazine chain as a writer and freelancer. I was also writing fiction. And then in my late twenties, I had a kind of spiritual crisis, an existential emergency, and I realized that you know I'd grown up in a kind of secular materialist, kind of scientific nihilist framework, but I had never really tested that for myself to figure out what I really believed. So then I started to make a spiritual exploration involving uh, visionary plant sacraments and psychedelic substances, which at that time were not that, sort of, they'd been sort of like repressed and, and had gone into like sort of underground framing. So yeah, that would be my first book, Breaking Open the Head, kind of a you know combination of cultural journalism and spiritual autobiography. That led me to a second book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, looking at the knowledge systems of indigenous traditional cultures around the world. You know, along the way, I began to reckon with the fact that we're facing an ecological crisis that is so catastrophic that it, it could bring an end to, you know, pretty much the human species, or at least crash us down to a much smaller population. And I began to make an inquiry into what were the blindnesses and gaps in our world and our knowledge system and our understanding that had led to this type of crisis to, to be unleashed by human activity. And also, what, would we do, what could we do from where we are now if we wanted to overcome distraction and inertia and actually face the situation? Like, how deep would the changes have to be? What would we have to change? How would we go about it? So that led me to this new book. How Soon Is Now, which actually I've been working on for quite a long time, maybe eight or nine years in different forms. Mm -hmm. I kept kind of trying and, and, and failing to put it together. And somehow, finally, I reached the, the, the tipping point where I was able to integrate all the, all the information and, and, and put it out there. So it's a good re big relief for me to get it out into the world. 
You know, a lot of a lot of your work does focus on the state of crisis in which humanity and Earth kind of now finds itself in. Where do we go from here? I mean, it seems like the political system is an utter mess. Ecologically, we're just raping the planet. So, I mean, how scary is the situation? Yes, I believe that you are correct. The political system is a travesty. And ecologically, the situation is worse than most people are even able to reckon with. When you factor in things like the fact that we're losing 10, uh, 10% or more of the Earth's remaining biodiversity every 10 to 15 years, climate change is spiking you know, beyond even recent scientific predictions. And now we've learned about deeper threats like the methane that's frozen in this you know, Siberian permafrost, which begins to erupt uh, as, uh, as, as warming intensifies. So... The book seeks to look at this systemically. One of the you know, main ideas of the book is that we can consider the ecological crisis as a rite of passage or an initiation, much like a shamanic initiation. And it's a, a triggering event on a, on a global scale to shift humanity from its current kind of adolescent, uh, immature state mm -hmm. to a kind of adult level of responsibility, where individually we step into the role of... Uh, you know, being responsible for the human community and the community of life as, as a whole. Now, I don't know how much decimation it's going to take before there's a kind of tipping point kind of phenomenon and, and, and enough people make that shift that it becomes like the new paradigm. Uh, you know, it may be that um, it, it, there's going to be a mass reduction in human population. I personally don't think that's necessary. I mean, one of the main linchpins of the book is Buckminster Fuller. Mm -hmm. And he just realized that, you know, we have this incredible technical capacity, but we're not using it efficiently or even truly rationally. You know, and we can see that in the way resources are spread and, and used. And, and, you know, the, the, our whole system at the moment is based on, you know, incessant growth uh, and uh, planned obsolescence and waste. So, yeah, so the book seeks to provide, you know, a, a blueprint for the future in all these different areas, including the technical support systems, the social, political, economic system, and then also the types of changes this would require to, you know, consciousness, culture, values, ideology. I mean, is there is there a point of no return with this? I mean, is there a point where it's it's too late and and we can no longer be conscious of this? Or, I mean, it doesn't seem... What, do no, what, do no, what do you mean no longer be conscious of this? It doesn't seem like people are waking up to the idea that we are are killing the planet. It just seems like people are more concerned with what the latest iPhone is. I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, where how can we kind of scare straight the people that are living here into harmonizing with their surroundings and their environment? Well, I mean, it's yeah, it's a, I mean, obviously, it's that's that's kind of the main questions of the book. Um, Clearly, we can't go back. You know, I mean, there are some people who are kind of retrogressively primitive, maybe like uh, John Zerzan, who believes that you know we can almost we almost need to go back to some people say agrarian, some people say hunter gatherer. I mean, I think that it's more about going forward, but it's kind of uh, approaching our social systems, our cultural systems, and our technologies in a new direction, with with the kind of the plan to build a, a scalable regenerative uh, system, regenerative society. Mm -hmm. So, and we see in every area, and that's what the book tries to kind of correlate and put together kind of approaches that make sense. So for instance, in terms of industry, there's William, William McDonough wrote a book, Cradle to Cradle, where he argued that essentially you could 
you know, recreate all of our industries ultimately so they feed back positively and productively into their ecosystems, uh, you know, in the way nature does. Na nature is constantly producing useful things for, for, for nature. You know, we can look at an economic system that's maybe not debt-based or a, tr a global trading currency that um, kind of loses value if you try to hoard it. So people, <laughs> instead of trying to hoard it, are, are actually the best they can do is, is, is get it back into circulation and, and share it effectively. So yeah, in every area, there, there are you know, hundreds or even thousands of years of alternatives and explorations. You know, what we would have to do is become conscious of the fact that we've unleashed this mega crisis and then determine that we're going to make the shift. Uh, and in terms of the consciousness of the masses, I believe that's very permeable and very influenceable by media, by marketing, by programming. And one thing I look at in the book is um, the Italian political philosopher Antonio Negri talks about how we now live in a time when kind of the, the most powerful form of production is no longer like material production as it was in Marx's time, like, you know, sewing machines and so on, you know, typewriters. Now the thing that's most produced is, is you know, immaterial production, things like narrative, social tools, and what immaterial production produces above all is subjectivity. So, so the media and the internet and the social networks kind of act as a, as a factory for producing and programming a certain level of subjectivity, a certain level of consciousness. Hmm. If, if we were able to make use of these incredibly powerful tools to you know, bring people into a different state of awareness, it could happen very quickly. And I think you see that kind of modeled at certain types of events like transformational festivals where it becomes apparent how quickly and readily people will change their ideals and behavior patterns mm -hmm. if it makes their lives more awesome and more fun. Hmm, that's intriguing. In your book, Breaking Open the Head, you traveled experiencing tribal cultures and various psychedelic substances. I mean, is this what you're kind of referring back to? Sorry, I'm not sure. In, in what sense? Uh, I mean, using psychedelics to enhance the consciousness of, of humans. Well, I don't, I mean, you know, for, for myself and also for many people that I know, including a lot of more and more people who are really much part of the sort of you know, 1%, the elite, the cultural and, and, and social influencers, mm -hmm. uh, psychedelics are turning out to be extremely important tools uh, that are leading people to have a lot of insight, a lot of personal healing. You know, they're, they're like, like all tools, they can also be misused and overused or, or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I think ayahuasca, which I've written a lot about, which is a medicine from the Amazonian rainforest, often not only gives people a lot of healing insight into themselves, it, it makes them more aware of their embeddedness in a kind of network of, of nature and super, super nature and cosmos and so on. So yeah, I, mean, I do think the psychedelics are profound and important tools. I don't necessarily think they're for everybody or that you know, everybody needs to take them. Uh, you know, in, in some situations, it may be that a small group you know, gets certain insights and then you know, uses narrative and story and ritual to convey those insights, you know, to, 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 to the, to the larger population. Yeah. I mean, um, so, so yeah. So, so I don't know if that answers your question. Actually, Did your, did your exposure to those tribal cultures and these psychedelic compounds change your worldview? Yeah. They had a, a deep and profound impact on me, which I described in breaking open the head and in 2012 and even in the new book, how soon is now I uh, talk about visiting I did. I was lucky to host two retreats with the Kogi and Arawak people who live in the Sierra Nevadas in Colombia, 
and uh, they're a pre-Incan civilization that's maintained itself in a, in a fully intact way by kind of escaping Western colonialism and hiding out higher up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very profound to be with them and and uh, meet people who are the lineage holders of, of, of their like metaphysics and so on. That sounds incredible. It seems like ayahuasca is getting more and more popular. It's getting it's getting almost trendy. And do you agree? Yep. And where do you see that going? I mean, do you see that as harmful to the Amazonian rain- rainforest, these kind of tourists showing up there? Or do you see it as a positive thing? I think it's a very positive uh, thing. I mean, it's a little, you know, it's obviously like all these things are a little complicated. As things get bigger, you know, they, they become part of other forces and, and open for different types of manipulation. Uh, I mean, in, in a way, it's, you know, br- Breaking Open the Head, which came out in 2002. I wrote a lot about ayahuasca and also I wrote about the Burning Man Festival. And it's been interesting to see these two phenomena kind of blossom, you know, in, in the populist, popular mind since then. But generally, I mean, the thing about ayahuasca is, of course, it's, you, can, you could say it's trendy, but it's still, you know, when people, you know, take the substance, it's a deep phenomenological experience where they receive insight, they receive healing. I think it's, 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 it's great. And also, I don't think that the ayahuasca use is having necessarily a negative impact on the rainforest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think actually, in many cases, it's creating a, a new circumstance where rich, you know, kind of first world people are now valuing, uh, valuing indigenous cultures on a deeper level and are trying to support them and working with them and bringing funding to them and so on. And also ayahuasca is now growing in other regions and other places, uh, you know, any, any place that's kind of subtropical like Hawaii or, or Florida or whatever. So, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's, you know, a, a, a essentially a positive thing that ayahuasca is kind of vining it, vining its way through the world right now. In 2006, you published your 2012 book where you looked at the, the Mayan calendar and, uh, I mean, I think you even predicted the the 2008 financial meltdown. This was a message that you received while you were in the Amazon, right? For that yeah. book. How did that go? What do you mean? How did that go? How did you get the message? How did, I mean, how did it, how did you come to write the book? Well, I mean, I was writing the book already. I was deep in the midst of researching the book and you know, the book, I mean, I, you know, for me, each of my books stems out of like a sense that like, almost this, like uncomfortable feeling that there's like, you know, we're, we're, we're missing uh, a piece, you know, in the jigsaw puzzle of like human knowledge and human understanding. And so for that, the first book, it was, you know, here I'm having these incredibly powerful, you know, visionary psychedelic experiences. And yet my culture says they're garbage, that this is nothing, you know, the New York Times just derided them. It's like toys of the hippie generation. So then that, that dichotomy, you know, sent me out, you know, to, to write the first book on psychedelic shamanism. When I explored psychedelic shamanism, I discovered that there were huge failures in, in the Western knowledge system and that we'd suppressed something of, of tremendous importance. I, I also, frankly, had an, all sorts of different psychic experiences and paranormal experiences, synchronicities, ESP, manifestations of objects and so on. So I also realized that the reje- the Western rejection of the realm of the psyche and the paranormal was also a mistake, mm-hmm. and that actually these indigenous cultures understood a lot more about the nature of reality than we uh, than, than than we knew in certain areas. So I then felt that having reached that understanding, that it was then necessary to take indigenous knowledge more seriously because they were able to access forms of knowing and forms of awareness that we had totally dismissed. 
So that led me to then write a book on these kind of prophecies, you know, the Mayan calendar, the Hopi prophecies, and so on, which all seem to point towards this time as an intense threshold of transformation, uh, kind of a, yeah, dimension, a shift from the fourth to the fifth world, as the Hopi say, and so on. So, um, yeah, so I plunged into the research for that book, you know, pretty much as a, as, you know, still as a, as a journalist, as a skeptic, although now one who is more, had a more shamanic and Jungian worldview than just a skeptical worldview. Mm-hmm. And on, on the path of, of researching that book, I had a, you know, experience when I was down in Brazil working with the Santo Daime uh, religion down there, mm-hmm. where I was drinking the medicine and a, one ceremony, a, a voice started to speak in my head and it essentially announced that it was uh, a Mayan or a Mesoamerican uh, deity or archetypal thought form uh, that called itself Quetzalcoatl, and uh, began to kind of download a transmission uh, that uh, I was given kind of the sense that it was my message. You know, my job was to take the message and and you know bring it out into this into the world. You know, it was a very subjectively convincing experience, and I wrote about it in the book. And for a while, I was very like caught up in it. Uh, in fact, my editor uh, rejected the the book uh, at Random House because it was too much for him, the kind of mystical overtones so that I had to find another publisher for that book. But um, yeah, but but in the in the end, I also recognized that I had become part of an archetypal process that involved the kind of transmission of visionary material, and it was something that had happened to, you know, Madame Blavatsky and Jose Arguelles and Aleister Crowley and you know, the, the, who's the guy who, uh, you know, the, the guy who started the Mormons. I mean, there's a kind of history where people receive prophetic transmissions in visionary states. It doesn't necessarily mean that the information is true. It does, it does mean that it's very archetypally uh, charged and powerful. So, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting experience to have had that uh, transmission and then to kind of figure out how to kind of, you know, kind of transduce the voltage of it, in a sense, into normal, the normal world and and so on. So being told that the world was going to shift in 2012 must have been a very emotive experience for you. Actually, I wasn't told that the world was going to shift in 2012. I was told that we we are in a process of of transition or metamorphosis. Okay. uh, And uh, there wasn't an exact timeline. Uh, in fact, I, I, you know, if you look at the book or the film that I made, 2012 Time for Change, it, it was, you know, the, the film looked at techniques like permaculture and bioremediation and alternative economic systems and so on, you know, w- with the sense that what, what the December 21st, 2012 was more like an invitation, you know, from the cosmos to examine our paradigm and our belief system and maybe integrate, you know, uh, other ways of knowing and understanding. And you talked about synchronicity a bit. I mean, how did how did that play into uh, writing the book and the message you received? And you know, can you give us an example of that? Breaking Open the Head and 2012 are, are you know, describe many of my personal experiences and, and many different kinds of synchronicities I had. And, you know, it's not just me. Most people that I know who go down this kind of Gnostic or shamanic or mystical path find uh, the same thing. They, they find that the world actually becomes... This kind of really a fascinating interplay between the inner psychic and the outer, you know, apparently material or, or physical, uh, to the point where you even wonder, you know, ultimately if there is, uh, you know, a dualism between them, or if they're just two manifestations of the same kind of uh, consciousness in a sense. 
I mean, moving back to the kind of ecological disaster that we're facing, is this an ignorance thing with humanity or is it more greed or is it a little bit of both? Or I mean, what, what can we do? What is causing this? And, you know, what can we do to the first thing, the first thing we have to recognize is that, you know, uh, for the most part, you know, nature is fairly flawless and even perfect in its processes. You know, it's been our assumption that since we've developed like culture and technology, we're actually separate from nature. But but actually, we could be you know a natural or cosmic process happening, you know, on 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 another scale or another level. And and it may be that what we're undergoing is is kind of like a, a birthing process, like a, as in evolutionary biology, like the the caterpillar, you know, becoming the the butterfly, you know, as the imaginal cells kind of spread through the, 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 the dying caterpillar and reprogram, you know, the, the organism. Uh, so yeah, so, so what seems to us as chaos and ignorance and confusion may actually be kind of like a program, like maybe unconsciously, uh, we're bringing about the, uh, conditions to force our own transformation or transmutation, because obviously if we just stay in our comfort zone, you know, we're not, we're not going to do that. That's not going to happen. We'll just have more pumpkin spice lattes at Starbucks. And, you know, uh, you know, and, and the fact is, yeah, we, we, you know, unfortunately the, the, the system that we're living in, you know, is, is a, is a dominator system, you know, it's based on military control. It's based on corruption. You know, it's, it's, it's had incredibly disastrous effects on, you know, local cultures and, and ecosystems around the earth. And so it, you know, it's kind of maybe a necessary confrontation with, uh, you know, with, with, with the system that we've unleashed. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. I don't think I've heard that one before. Um, there's something really interesting in your, in this book, uh, how soon is now you state that cities should be reimagined as the human equivalent of a coral reef that is sitting in harmony with their surrounding ecosystem. I find that amazing. I mean, how can we do that? It's not, that's just my, that's not really my idea. I mean, there's, that's from, you know, people like John Todd and Richard Register of exploring this idea of eco cities. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, you know, first of all, you know, even in the best case scenario, uh, you know, barring the development of some fab, fabulous X-Men like psychic powers, you know, we're probably not going to be able to prevent, you know, coastal flooding, uh, and, and the sea level rise of up to a hundred feet. Uh, you know, the, po- the ice caps are already, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, on the way towards melting. So ultimately, we'd have to construct new human settlements further inland. Now, the question is, how do we do that? I mean, I, you know, I live in New York City and I see the buildings that are going up here all the time or in London. You know, there's no there's no deep ecological consciousness to most of them. They're 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 profit driven, you know, kind of, uh, you know, constructions. Uh, if we have to and we are going to have to, I believe, make this type of shift you know, we could look at ways of designing cities that are, yeah, meshed in with the natural environment, where more food is grown on site, where, uh, you know, they're the, the, the actually, you know, more ideal uh, centers for living, you know, with uh, biking and walking built into them. Uh, I mean, I, I have one friend uh, at Stanford who's created a thing called Regen Villages, and his idea is to create these kind of modular, you know, kind of kind of structures that can be manufactured and distributed. And each one comes with the capacity to, you know, create its own food through aquaponics, compost, uh, you know, regenerate, you know, renewable energy built into it, solar and so on. So, you know, you could actually build, put these up and people would, would instantly be able to live, you know, quite self-sufficiently. And, and that type of idea seems to be a very interesting 
way of approaching, you know, our, our technology to sort of reintegrate it, you know, in, in, in a way with, with, with nature rather than constantly seeking to dominate or control the processes of nature. Interesting. You know, you talk about how technology is consciousness in this book. What did you mean by that? You know, we could look at language itself as a, as a, as a technology, maybe the first technology, you know, or music or something. You know, we, we can only become kind of beyond a certain level of self-aware of our actions and our, you know, capacities through, through abstract sign systems, which, you know, is, is like a form of technology. And then beyond that is, you know, the technologies that we create that reflect us back on ourselves. You know, so if we think about the development of the computer and the internet over the last 40 years, you know, how that's given us a whole new set of uh, metaphors and ways of understanding you know, our own consciousness, how we function. So in a sense, the, the evolution of tool using and tool making is we make a tool, uh, you know, we have an idea, we make the tool, the tool exists as a projection of our consciousness, then it reflects us back upon ourselves. So we iterate, we make another tool, and then we learn about ourselves something from, from that tool, and then we do it again, and we just keep doing that. That seems to be how humans uh, um, you know, develop uh, consciousness, you know, as well as technology. I really like that. I mean, to Daniel, what to what extent does technology reflect our current psycho-spiritual state? And do you think it's taking us n- nearer to where we need to be or further away? I mean, on, on another level, we are probably where we need to be, you know, taking more like a, a purely kind of a mystical perspective, right? Like uh, samsara is nirvana. You know. But um, yeah, but I think it has both aspects. I mean, on the one hand, our communications technology is kind of meshing us together into one global brain, kind of one massive planetary superorganism. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the other hand, in this short interim period we're in right now, it, it feels that you know the, the kind of corporate kind of encroachment on consciousness has kind of has kind of taken a, a, a new, more virulent form where people are in a constant state of distraction and, you know, kind of, kind of like we're, we're, we're sort of, we're sort of being, you know, overpowered by our technologies at this point. Uh, you know, one thing I do in the book is I critique this whole construct of the singularity, um, you know, as a, a very kind of masculine linear construct. And, and also that, that it kind of ignores the singularity is the idea that we're approaching this threshold where our technology is going to exponentially accelerate and ultimately merge with our bodies so that we become kind of cyborgs or able to upload our consciousness to com- machines or computers. Ray Kurzweil, who's uh, one of the Google engineering directors, is one of the main proponents of the singularity. But it's become a very popular ideology, and I would say it's almost kind of become a religious faith for Silicon Valley and for a lot of lot of people. You know, the problem is that our technologies are what have caused all of the ecological damage, right? So like plastic seemed like an amazing idea, but we didn't realize that they were going to end up polluting every, you know, endocrine system of every animal on the planet and cause these huge, you know, lakes of plastic, islands of plastic in the oceans and so on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we get very excited about our capacities and we keep extending them but we're not very good at anticipating the unintended consequences. And as we look towards the future, the horizon of the next levels of technologies that are extremely invasive or extremely totalizing, I think we have a lot to fear that those technologies could go wrong and actually make our situation radically worse. So I think actually getting the right angle on how we approach 
kind of uh, creating technologies and implementing them is very, very critical if we want to survive as a species and hopefully, hopefully even thrive as a species, which is what you know, my, my favorite brilliant thinkers like Buckminster Fuller and Oscar Wilde kind of point towards. Yeah, I mean, it seems like I think there's something like 1% in your book, it says that there's 1% of, of all solar energy is what makes up the, the total amount of solar energy that we're putting into this resource. Why, why do you think this is? Is there I mean, I know that you're into the occult and esoteric realm. So do you think there's a control structure behind this controlling this with a sort of invisible hand? I mean, could there be something that is engineering the sort of suicide of this planet? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's sort of complicated and, and subtle. I, I, it's, it takes me a while. Like, you know, For me, language is really important, so it's really important to find the right angle on, on questions like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I definitely believe that there are, um, you know, kind of occult realms, hidden powers and principalities that, uh, you know, we are in contact with uh, consciously or not. Uh, and... Yeah, there are some some of those realms, um, you know, maybe seek to make use of, of hum- humanity in certain respects uh, for 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 energy or for power, um, and so yeah, some of that is happening. I mean, another very intriguing idea um, for me is that some of it has to do with um, bacteria, uh, you know, maybe like gut bacteria, like you know, talk to- with a toxic plasmosis and. Uh, uh, where which changes the behavior of uh, uh, mice or something? I mean, I mean, uh, you know, the the Western diet and lifestyle, you know, supports kind of uh, you know starch, you know, wheat, uh, gluten, sugar. You know, we're we're feeding all this type of bacteria like candida and so on, and maybe it it makes us kind of stupid and sluggish, uh, and um, allows us to be more easily manipulated. You know, but I, I imagine most Trump supporters have like uh, horrible diets, you know. So, 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 yeah, so it's like a multidimensional scenario, I guess, like, you know, and, it, and it's subtle. And I, I think it's very easy to get too conspiratorial and, 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 and kind of, and, you know, that I really avoided that in the, in the new book, to be honest. I, okay. I think it's more important for us to understand, um, you know, what, what the systemic path is to bringing about a transformation and then look at tangible ways we, we can do that in the time that's available. Why did you, why did you avoid this topic in the book? I'm curious. Uh, I just find that it becomes like a, like a really, um, it wastes a lot of people's time and energy. Like instead of actually thinking about what they can do, right. they get into, they, they, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a mind parasite. Like people start thinking about the evil reptilians or the, you know, conspiratorial this or that, or the gray aliens right. and their minds kind of lock on it. And I, I feel in a way that's almost like how it functions as, as a mind parasite. It's like a distraction device. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, what we have to do is figure out how we, you know, mobilize people power, you know, to bring about the types of changes that we need to make if we want to survive as a species. I don't know. It's like, it's, uh, it becomes very self-indulgent. And also a lot of it is just not very good information or not very clear information. Like when I listen to somebody like David Wilcock, I feel it's, you know, a lot of it is frankly kind of bullshit. Hmm. And a lot of these guys, like, I don't know if they're, if it's a, a, a intentionally disinformation or they're just getting told things by people who aren't that reliable and then repeating it verbatim. Uh, I mean like flat earth kind of thing? Well, yeah, flat earth is an example or there's, you know, 
150 stories, uh, you know, lower underground beneath the Denver airport where they're conducting alien experiments or whatever. I mean, they, they, a lot of people put this stuff out uh, as literally the case, and, and, it, and, it, and it creates kind of like a fuzzy, it, ha- it has a negative impact, I think, on the um, spiritual counterculture. Uh, the way people can't uh, can't can't separate what they actually uh, you know know and have evidence of from stuff that's just kind of hearsay or kind of murky fable. You know, this is why this is why I asked if it was too late for us to save the planet at this point because it seems like we need a hard reset for things to go into a, a place where it's in balance again. Well, yeah, well. I mean, I think it would be hubris for us to say that we know. I mean, all, all I know is that if we were to wake up tomorrow and we were to, you know, sort of break the inertia of our current institutions and, you know, have an awakened populace able to, you know, use resources efficiently, you know, we wouldn't have to see a catastrophic, uh, you know, failure of, 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 of you know, the, the systems and population crash and so on. But obviously, the longer that we wait to do this, the, the more difficult and unlikely it will be. I mean, this is what, you know, Buckminster Fuller saw this back in the 60s. You know, he saw that, um, you know, he said that political, system, political systems had become irrelevant and were outmoded by the needs of a design revolution. I think what he missed, and what I discussed in the book, is that actually political systems are also design artifacts. Mm-hmm. And um, the systems that we have politically were designed in the 18th and early 19th century when information uh, moved a lot slower than it does today, and where the speed of change was much slower, you know. So, so now, I mean, you know, we have now this interactive communication systems of the internet, and and it could potentially a- allow us to, you know, grow more intelligent, uh, make better decisions, you know, make our decisions with better context. You know, it it could allow us to do that at, at a much faster rate. How? How do we move from competition to cooperation? Um, well, I mean, that's the whole book kind of tries to describe that. I don't know if I could sum it up in, in, a, in a couple sentences. But, um, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, several different levels to that. One is just a realization, you know, that we're in an artificial construct of, of, of competition and domination. And that's built into the, you know, structure of the monetary system itself. Um, you know, I'm very intrigued by the potential abilities of, uh, social tools and social networks to, uh, provide like a new scaffolding for human communication. Like I'm friends with, uh, one of my friends, Casey, who created the web platform Couchsurfing, you know, which was, you know, predated Airbnb. It was like a non-commercial version of Airbnb, but you would just travel around the world as a young broke person and you can, you know, stay on somebody's couch because, Maybe you're interesting. Maybe they want to meet a new person, you know, like, and, and actually people find those to be really enjoyable, you know, experiences. So I think there are a lot of things that are now commercial transactions, which could actually be shared based on sharing relationships. And maybe ultimately everything could, if we were to skillfully design like a phased uh, transition. I mean, one of the ideas uh, is in a way like, you know, at some point, maybe 25 years ago, or who knows when, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, Steve Jobs was like, Steve Jobs was like, imagine someday we would have an iPhone. And then he had to kind of reverse engineer from that outcome. Like, how do you get the iPhone? Well, you need to have these companies producing these things and these mines, creating these metals and so on. 
I think we could do the same thing with our global civilization. If enough of us got our heads together, we could, you know, envision the best possible outcome, you know, which would be a humanity that was free of fear, you know, free of resource constraints, you know, no longer in meaningless competition. And then we could figure out how we reverse the, the outcome to get there, you know, using technology, social media, social tools, and so on. That's, that's kind of the idea I suggest in the book. To anyone listening, is there a single thing that we can offer to do that they can do in their, their regular lives to kind of affect this global position that we're in? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, ultimately, I think there is going to have to be a, a call of a time of shared sacrifice uh, in service to the you know, greater community of life. And the more that people can begin to make those sacrifices now out of, out of a, a joyful place rather than a scared place, I think that, would, that, that that's something. You know, so, for instance, um, no longer eating meat because we know that meat is responsible for, you know, a large percentage of CO2 emissions and deforestation. You know, uh, taking less vacations. You know, giving up excess, giving up a second house or you know, a new car or sharing, sharing a car or not even having a car, you know, um, stuff like that. Uh, you know, beyond that would be, you know, building community networks, you know, either joining networks that already exist or, or creating a group that, that, that feels like it fits, you know, your, your viewpoint. I mean, I think we're ultimately going to have to engage in, you know, community actions, and, and that, you know, it, it's hard for me to, you know, it, it's a little bit hard for me to express without people having the whole context of the book. So for instance, I believe that decentralization is going to be part of the new paradigm, you know, kind of, we've had these centralized hierarchical control structures, and those are going to give way to more participatory democratic structures mm-hmm. that kind of occupy pointed towards. And, you know, there are tools that people can use now, social tools, like what is called Lumio, L-O-O-M-I-O, where you can make democratic decisions in a group following the principles of the Occupy movement. You know, so, so uh, the, there's a movement in Spain called Podemos, which is using Lumio as its organizing tool. So stuff like that you know, may, might, might become interesting you know, for, for people to experiment with. Hmm. Okay. Daniel, where can, where can people find your work? I know that, I mean, the book that I'm looking at is An Uncorrected Proof. So I don't, I don't, this book comes out in 2017. How soon is now? How soon is now is still off a little bit into the future. Uh, yes, how soon is now comes out in February. Okay. Uh, obviously, it's amazing if people pre-order the book on Amazon. I'm hoping that a lot of people will because then it will shoot up the Amazon ranks and more people will see it. Um, I have some excerpts from the book online at the website is howsoonisnow.info. Uh, people can follow me on Facebook as my personal page is what I usually use. Uh, they can. I have a website pinchbeck.io. Uh, they can send me a message, drop me a line. Uh, yeah, I got other stuff floating around. My film, 2012, Time for Change, is up on YouTube. Uh, that's almost like a prelude to the new book. Excellent. We will definitely direct the people that way. I really appreciate your time. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Okay, enjoy. Have a great day. This is a human experience. We are going to get out of here. We will see you guys next week.